0: This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's the story of the cane a dragon hunter from the folklore of South Africa. You'll learn that if you're trying to find something, it's helpful to scream insults at a frog family, just trying to enjoy a quiet dinner. Then, on the creature of the week, it's the leprechaun. And if a guy shows up at your house riding a sheep's side saddle and dressed like he's going to the Renaissance festival, do not let him hold your baby. <laughs> This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 53, Crocodile Tears. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Today's story comes to us from the Besoto people in Southern Africa. They are a people group that lives mostly in modern-day South Africa. They speak Sesoto, a Bantu language. Today's story takes place probably sometime in the late Middle Ages, when the society was probably just a loose band of clans, each ruled by a chief. And we'll start with the late chief's daughter, the Cain. The Cain's brothers were the worst. Their father had died last year. It happens to literally everyone, and life in the village moved on. A new chief was chosen, and the old revered, and then mostly forgotten, except by the three children he left behind, who were now forced to fend for themselves. Luckily, the cane was there. She was the older sister to her two brothers, and she became their father, their sister, and their mother, on the day that he died. She cleaned, collected and ground corn, left early in the morning to get water, made sure her family had food, a home, and a future. Her brothers, Hunted, sometimes. And she was the one who had to clean, dress, and cook the kill after they threw the dead animal down in the house later in the day. It would have been annoying, but the time was finally here for them to become men. They had been at warrior school for five months, and today was their graduation day. It was a rite of passage, and today was the day that the Canes' responsibilities would be over. She arrived at the grass huts with the customary cloaks and shields she had made for them, it was something that fathers did for their sons, but the cane had to do it since her father had died. She had been proud of making the shields and cloaks. It meant that she saw her family through this difficult time, and they had survived this devastating loss, except that her brothers, remember, were the worst. Shepherding her family through this dark time and doing the jobs of three people, well, that was apparently not enough. The brothers refused to leave the huts, unless she came back with different cloaks and shields. They were the sons of an honored chief, some leather shield made by a woman was a disgrace she rolled her eyes and gritted her teeth what yeah they said leather wouldn't do they would only leave these huts with a glowing dragon skin cloak and shield okay seriously what the cane asked she rubbed her forehead okay and where am I supposed to find that on a dragon probably her brothers replied no no I am not doing that the cane said Clearly frustrated, they looked her square in the eye and said, that's what father would have done for them. If there was a way to slam a door in a grass hut, they would have done it. She would have refused, but that last comment about her father cut her to the core. She had loved and respected her father as much as her brothers. She knew that if anyone could bring back a dragon skin cloak, he could have. Now that he was gone, his responsibilities fell on her. And though it was extremely ridiculous and selfish... She felt as if she was a failure if she let this task go unfinished. She took a deep breath. She would do it. She would honor her father's legacy and complete this extremely unreasonable request. She would kill a dragon for her brothers. She went home and got ready for her journey. She took a shield and leather cloak that she had made for her brothers, and she gathered her father's knives and spears. She was no warrior, but she would figure it out, for her father. Then, she heard a knock at the hut's door. She opened it, and she was surprised to see nearly the whole village assembled outside. You're not doing this, right? Someone asked. She cocked her head to the side. You're not going after the dragon, the villager continued. Your brothers are idiots, and no one expects you to do this. She explained that she knew it was unreasonable, but she would do it for her father, to honor him, and to prove to her brothers that she wasn't scared. Well, you should be, a warrior from the crowd said. I mean, dragons are scary. You're crazy, and this isn't a woman's work, but we're also all too scared to go with you, said basically everyone in the village. The king said that she was still going, and the men of the village who cared about her had a weird way of showing it. They told her that she would die, and that in her last moments of consciousness when she was being eaten alive by a dragon, to remember this moment, when they told her not to go. Not only was she not a warrior, but she was weak. She would probably die before she even found the dragon. With that, they left her. The king was now more determined than ever, but it took her days to leave the village. No one wanted to sell anything to her, seeing it as helping her to commit suicide. She gathered everything slowly, and set off on the long journey, to somewhere. She had no idea how to find a dragon. She was a few hours out when, along the plains, she saw a group of men. Her hand went underneath her cloak to her father's long knife. Her heart beat faster as they approached, and as she saw the dozen or so heavily armed men eyeing her as they approached, she knew how big of a mistake going alone had been. The leader studied her from a distance, and as the group approached, they stopped and blocked the road. Not wanting to mess around at all, she drew her knife, the cane. The leader said. She pointed the knife at him, then relaxed a bit. He knew her name. She learned that the man and his warriors had come from the king. He had heard of the cane's quest to get the skin of a dragon and wanted to help. The leader's name was Masilo, and his dozen warriors were at her disposal. Fairly stunned by this reversal of fortune, she thanked him, and the twelve warriors and Masilo fell in behind the cane, who still had no idea where she was going. Remember, the cane knew nothing about dragons, but lucky for her, the warriors knew next to nothing about dragons. They knew that dragons lived in the water, but that's really it. They brought bits of a slaughtered ox with them because they wanted to have something to lure it out of the river. And so they handed her a sack full of ox bits, the very worst trail mix, and walked to the river's edge. Coming to the river, they began shouting insults at the dragon. The stories don't say what the insults were, but maybe they said that the dragon was the type to finish the milk but to put the empty carton back in the fridge. You know, really mean stuff. Or that the dragon points at things on your computer screen, but actually touches the screen. Or that the dragons leave one square of toilet paper on the roll, instead of just replacing the roll. Or maybe they just said the dragon's mother was a hamster, and its father smelled of elderberries. We're not sure. They sent a confusing message, by throwing bits of the ox, a treat for the dragons, into the river. And it wasn't long, before a creature came from the depths, to confront them bullfrog came out of the river, and said, hey guys, I wasn't going to say anything, but the dragons don't live here, just me and my frog family, the dragons farther down the river, now, if you don't mind, we're trying to have dinner, and we really don't like strangers screaming insults at us while we eat, the cane and the warriors were apologetic, and continued down the river, the frog waiting at the water's edge, before going back to join his frog family, farther down, they again, stopped and screamed insults, They threw bits of ox, and again, a creature came from the depths. This time, it was a tortoise, who said once again, the dragon lived farther down. He was none other than our old friend, who I mistakenly called a turtle the whole time. It's a weird American thing. He was from the north, from Nigeria, and he was the best at what he did. And what he did was calm people out of small to moderate amounts of money. By the time they left the turtle, he had borrowed $78 from the warriors, talked three of them out of their lunches, and one had co-signed a loan with him. Not really. The group continued to have uncomfortable encounters with amphibians and reptiles, as the morning bled into the afternoon, and then the evening. Finally, they reached the mouth of the great river, and, almost out of oxpits, flung the rest in the water, and waited. Everyone was resting as it neared dusk. Then, one of the warriors leapt to his feet, at the sight of something in the river. It was a head of gray hair. And then they saw gaunt and wrinkled claw-like hands, and then a stooped body. The dragon hunting party stood there warily. She was just an old woman who had risen from the river in darkness. What was there to be afraid of except all of those things? Finally, the cane stepped forward and asked if the old woman knew where the dragons were. Seaweed hung from the hand of the old woman as she brought it up to the cane. The cane shirked back, but the old woman just pulled her own hair aside, revealing a kindly face. She was just a sweet old woman who lived in the river. The king asked again if she had seen the dragons, and the old woman said, yep, just a few days ago actually, when they went rampaging through my village, eating everyone but me. The king gasped and apologized, and the old woman continued. The dragons had tried to eat the old woman, but they hadn't been able to. Apparently, when you work hard for years and years, your skin actually becomes hard. They tried to bite her, but after about 15 minutes and a few cracked teeth, they let her go. The old woman now got to hang around her abandoned village and cook for the dragons. That's right, kids. Work hard your whole life, and not only will you get superpowers, but you might live long enough to watch everyone you've ever loved die violently right before your eyes. The old woman broke down, and the cane consoled her. The cane said that they were here to get a dragon skin, and that meant that they would need to kill them, and they'd free the old woman. The woman said, you don't stand a chance, but... The cane insisted, and begged the old woman to take them to her village. The old woman finally agreed. The village was like the place where Lancelot of the Lake grew up, in that it was underwater, but not. It was like a normal village, just in water, but you could still breathe, and you weren't, like, slowed down or anything. The cane and Masilo followed the old woman down to her village, and it was as they expected. Half of the houses had been torn apart, and those that hadn't had blood smeared on the doorways and windows. Then they saw the light, it was shining bright, like a metal reflected in the sun, and it was descending on the river, above them. The old woman began panicking, telling the cane and Masilo to hide. The dragons were coming. The cane and Masilo scrambled, but the old woman led them into a pit, and then covered it with reeds and soil. Up above, they heard dragons land on the ground, it was like a herd of oxen stampeding over them, and even with the layer of earth and reeds, the light from their skin still shined through. The dragons were basically flying crocodiles with glowing skin, which, I mean, it's barely a dragon, but a flying crocodile is probably the most terrifying type of crocodile. They landed, blood smeared on their mouths from their hunt just now, and their eyes widened. They took a deep breath. People. They told the old woman that the stink of humans was all around. They demanded to know where the people were. The woman said, Oh, yeah, my loved ones, they're still everywhere like literally everywhere in pieces. You guys left a lot of bodies strewn throughout the village and won't let me bury them, which, on top of tragic, is just wasteful. The dragon said no. There were others. They dropped down to all fours and sniffed and sniffed, but the smell of fresh humans was getting mixed up with the now very pungent odor of the dead humans. Soon, they were tired from their hunt and from the full bellies of what they had found, and they couldn't even stay awake. They would figure out this human problem when they woke up, the dragons fell asleep where they were, in different spots in the village. Fifteen minutes later, the old woman came to the edge of the pit, and brushed the dirt aside. She had changed her mind. They couldn't fight the dragons. They had to leave now. When the cane emerged from the hole, she had to shield her eyes from the light. Even asleep, the dragons were brighter than the moon. There were three of them, in different spots around the village. And they were massive. They were so much larger than the cane had thought. She knew she wouldn't be able to fight them. She agreed to leave. As they made their way to the edge of the village, and back to the steep bank to come out of the river, the cane saw the third beast, far from the others. It was snoring. She looked at the thick, powerful tail, the teeth coming out of the jaws, and the hard reptilian skin. She would have died if she fought it. She realized this now. But then, she noticed that right now, She didn't have to fight it. Her hands immediately became slick with sweat. If she judged wrong, this would be it for her. Her villagers would be right. She gritted her teeth. She needed to do this. If only for her. She slipped her knife from her belt and crept toward the dragon. You probably knew this, but saltwater crocodiles have the strongest bite on the planet, with 3,700 pounds per inch. The catch? They are remarkably unbalanced and the muscles to open their mouths are extremely weak. If a croc's mouth is closed, you can keep it that way with just a rubber band. Masilo saw what the cane was doing, and he also saw that it was too late to stop her. He did the next best thing, and shirked behind the old lady with the unbreakable skin, as the cane made the bravest or stupidest decision of her entire life. She sidled up next to the dragon crocodile, took three deep breaths, and slid her hand over its jaws. She clamped down on them and held tightly, and then she saw its eyes snap open. Unfortunately for the dragon crocodile, almost simultaneously when she grabbed him by the snout, she plunged her dagger deep into its neck, and did not stop sawing. The dragon lurched and rolled onto its back, but the cane didn't let go, knowing that her grip was the only thing that kept her head from meeting teeth and thousands of pounds of pressure. She rolled with it, and kept hacking at its neck. It tried to whip her with its tail, but she held on. It tried clawing at her, and even though it dug into her side and drew some blood, she drew far more. Slowly, the dragon croc began to weaken, and began to flail and fight less and less. The cane, though, kept hacking and sawing and stabbing. She did it with such single-minded intensity, that a minute after the dragon was dead below her, Missilo had to come and pull her away from the corpse. The three held their breath, waiting to see if the other two dragons would wake. When they saw that they were safe, the old lady went to the cane, and wiped the blood from her face, and hands, and hair, and everywhere else. The cane stood up, and grabbed her knife, one down. But Missilo stopped her, she was bleeding from where the dragon's claw got her. And no matter how she was feeling, it was obvious that the fight had been difficult. She had done an amazing thing here, but she had also gotten very lucky. They had to go. The cane sighed. He was right. The old woman quietly tore some strips from her clothing, and bandaged the cane's side. The cane stood. She wouldn't fight more of them, but she would get what she came for. She told Miss Elo to go to the surface, and to get his warriors. They had a dragon to skin. And after the break, we'll see that there are still two more dragons, who are not exactly thrilled about their friend's death. And that will be right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Movement Watches. Do you know what's fun? Getting your holiday shopping done with weeks to spare. You know what's not fun? Holiday shopping, for me at least. With Movement Watches, that stress and gift-giving anxiety can melt away with the press of a button. Really though, check out the site. The watches are excellent quality, look and feel high-end, but they start at just $95, and they even have a gift guide with suggestions and boxes for men and women. I have a movement watch, and I've been getting compliments ever since I put it on. It looks like one of those super expensive watches at the super crowded department stores, but again, they start at just $95. It has a classic design, quality construction, and a cool minimalist style. Mine is a clean metal timepiece with a genuine leather band, and the crafted detail is apparent, even down to the smallest element. And you can get 15% off today, with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmtwatches.com slash myths. I love the watch, and it has a really clean design. Now is the time to step up your watch game. Go to mvmtwatches.com slash myths. Join the movement. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. I've watched cooking shows in the past where I'll see people making these delicious meals. So I'll try to find a comparable recipe, and then the ingredients. And then I'll see that I need a $10 spice that I'll use once, and that'll have a ton of leftover ingredients. And that's when I usually just scrap the whole idea and make the same thing I always do. Not so with Blue Apron. You can make these awesome, delicious, and exciting sorts of meals without the hassle because Blue Apron sends step-by-step recipes and fresh ingredients right to your door every week. These recipes are amazing, and the ingredients are fresh, seasonal, and sustainably sourced. You can spend time with friends and family making delicious meals for under $10 a person. And I found that most recipes only take us about 30-40 30-40 to 40 minutes. This December, I'm making roast pork and braised cabbage with barley and glazed apples, Thai green coconut curry with sweet potato and jasmine rice, and brown butter and chestnut gnocchi with Brussels sprouts and pea shoot salad. And you can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash legends. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com/slash legends. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Alright, now back to the show. They had warriors come and carry the body out of the river, onto the plains. They weren't foolish enough to try to skin it within earshot of the other dragon crocs. There, over the next several hours, they skin the beast, taking the glowing, scaly skin. When they were finished, they left the rest for the animals. It was better than the dragon deserved. Around the time Orange began to creep up on the eastern horizon, the cane became anxious. They killed one of the dragon's friends, and now they somehow needed to get home. They were exposed out in the open, with only a handful of warriors. She knew that if they ran as fast as they could, they were still hours and hours from her village. And even if they made it, what was to stop the dragons from doing what they had done to the underwater village? The cane began to panic. She yelled for everyone to get packing. Tired or no, they needed to leave immediately. The woman agreed, and could read the anxiety on the cane's face. The old woman said that she knew that they were going to have a tough trip, but she had something that could help. She produced a tiny orange pebble. When things got to be the most dire, the cane should call everyone to her and slam the pebble on the ground. She just had to make sure that there were no buildings around. The cane was about to ask more, but that's when they heard the wail. It came from the river. The dragons. Were awake. The dragons were playing with them. They had spotted the cane, Masilo, and the warriors just ten minutes ago, and they saw the glowing skin at the cane's bag. They already knew that they would eat the warriors, slowly, and then they would eat the young woman, who had their friend's skin, last. For now, though, they just drifted on the warm morning updrafts of the wind, watching the humans below panic run and tire themselves out, making sure that there wouldn't be any fight left in them when the dragons finally descended. Then, they would take and crush them one by one until only the young woman remained. Nearly an hour later, the runners were beginning to slow, and the dragons were beginning to salivate. The warriors could see one dragon drifting above them lazily, its shadow ominously cast on them, and then they heard the sounds of wings beating behind them. The cane turned her head, and saw the dragon, mouth open, diving for them. Do it now the old woman yelled. And cane remembered what she meant. The orange pebble. The cane screamed for everyone to stop, and while they were distracted, she slammed the pebble on the ground. Stone walls shot up around them, and the ground transformed from dirt to stone. Then they began the climb. The cane, Masilo, the old woman and the warriors, were in a room, and a stone tower was growing underneath them. They felt the tower shake, and the cane rightfully assumed, that it was the dragon that was diving, slamming into the wall below them. Then, she looked up, to the other dragon. They were climbing, and the tower was growing so quickly, that the dragon above them, didn't have time to get out of the way. The cane saw, and everyone heard, the dragon's neck crack against the top of the stone wall. He stayed there, pinned just for a moment by the force of the rising tower, but then, limp and unconscious, he fell. The cane rushed to the window as the tower slowed. She could see the unconscious dragon tumbling down through the sky before slamming on the ground. He would never get up again. The dragon that was diving at them, the one that had prompted all this, though, was probably still alive, as far as the cane could tell. It had just hit the mountain, but she could kind of see it twitching. Then she noticed how cold it was. She could see her breath, so far up in the air, and the hunters, the old woman, and Miss were huddled together for warmth. In the center of their chamber, at the top of the tower, was an altar, and on that altar was the pebble. The cane's teeth chattered, and she shivered as she made it to the altar. She plucked the pebble. As soon as she did, the stone began returning to it. In strands all around her, the pebble sucked up the tower, as they slowly returned to the ground. In minutes, the walls began to break down around them, and finally, the altar disappeared. They were, once again, standing on the plains. The pebble was all that was left the cane put it back in her pack. They could see the dragons, nearly a half mile away. A mountain had sprung up under the tower, and the dragon that was still alive had crashed into the foothills. The cane thought about it, but she knew it would be folly to try and go kill the dragon. If he were gained consciousness before she made it, she would be vulnerable. She knew that they had to run, to try to get far enough away, so that the monster, when he woke up, wouldn't know where she went. The group, again, took off in a run. Without frequent stops along the river, or tortoise-con artists, the trip back to the village was much faster. Also, running helped. Everyone was drenched in sweat, their legs jelly, and they felt like they couldn't go on. Then, they saw Thakane's village. They would get there and get indoors, and maybe, just maybe, the injured dragon would pass over them if he came this way. The people of the village came out, when they saw the running group about a quarter mile away. It was Thakane, the daughter of the last chief and they could see the glowing hide in her bag. They were amazed she had done it. And then, they saw a speck in the sky, far behind the runners. The cane heard screaming, and saw the village pointing at the sky. She allowed herself a look over her shoulder, and saw the dragon. It was still far off, and it was bobbing and weaving painfully in the sky. It was injured. But it was still coming for them, and it would reach them before they made it back to the village. The cane put her hand in her bag and was about to yell to her warriors to come to her, but the old woman grabbed her arm. She couldn't do that here. The tower was too high and the mountain below it too wide. They would be safe, but it would utterly destroy the village. The cane sighed, put the stone away. She stopped running. The warriors, the old woman, and Masilo stopped too, and they followed the cane's lead when she took a spear off her back. They turned to face the dragon, quickly descending that Kane barely knew how to use a spear, but she and her warriors would fight this thing, and maybe she would be able to save her village, even if it cost her her life. They could see the dragon's bloody mouth, broken and missing several teeth from the collision just hours ago. It was smiling and salivating though. It knew they couldn't win in a fight, and it was very much looking forward to making this woman, who had taken two of its friends, suffer. The dragon put its wings back, and started to dive, with its mouth open, and claws out. The cane and the warriors gripped their weapons, and braced themselves for a fight. The old woman just stood there, Remember that she had really hard skin. She had even been one of the dragon's mouths before, and was in virtually no danger now. The cane's heart, though, beat faster and faster. The dragon was almost here. It was time. And then it wasn't. She heard a gag, a half-scream, and the dragon veered off in flight, hitting the ground hard and skidding to a stop. The cane was confused, and when the dust cleared, she could see the beast coughing, and clawing, and bleeding from the throat. Then, she saw what had done it. Her village, the people that had laughed at her, and berated her for doing a man's work, and who had ultimately abandoned her to do this quest alone, well, they were behind the cane, and her small band of warriors. One of them had thrown the spear, that lodged in the dragon's throat, at the last minute. That's what had caused it to veer off, and tumble to the ground. They kept peppering it with arrows. The village had come to help the cane, after all. The dragon got the spear out of its throat, and struggled to its feet. Arrows were sticking in its hard skin, and the ground all around it, as a few more spears found their target. And then, the dragon heard the dogs. Bones broken from its collision with the tower, and bleeding from a dozen places, the dragon could see the hounds running at it, their eyes hungry, and their mouths salivating. The dragon scrambled away, running as fast as it could, before flapping its wings and taking flight. A cheer rose up from the village as the dragon disappeared into the sky, and they ran to greet the cane. They were amazed by her and of the stories of what had happened. She not only killed one of the dragons herself but got the skin and lived to tell about it and She did it all without her village. many apologized for how they had treated her on the day she left. They said that she was the best of them, and she had done what even their late chief couldn't have done. She had surpassed her father. the cane was surprised when a few of the more well-connected villagers saw Masilo, panicked, and bowed before him. Soon, after whispers spread across the crowd, nearly the whole village was bowing before Masilo. As it turned out, he wasn't some warrior sent by the king. He was the king. The crowd surrounded him, and the king quietly left. She had one more thing to do. The cane didn't sleep that night. It took several hours, but she took the skin and prepared it. Then, she made the cloaks and shields. When morning came, she was finished, and she walked down to where her brothers lived, in the grass shacks. Wordlessly, she presented them with her dragon-skin cloaks and shields, and left. Now, they were no longer children. They were men, and she could live her life. They stood in stunned silence. She, their sister had actually done it. They put on their cloaks, and went to rejoin their village. Back in town, the cane heard Masila was looking for her. When she found him and the warriors, she saw that they were getting ready to leave. But he said that he couldn't go, without seeing her one more time. He couldn't go, without asking her something. She said yes and left her village as the future queen. At one point, she had been the daughter of a chief, and she could be assured of a life of comfort. Then, tragedy and hardship struck, and she felt trapped, doing the roles of three people, and caring for her ungrateful brothers. Now, she would be the queen. She had fought dragons, been higher in the sky than anyone not wearing faulty bird wings, and led her brothers into adulthood. She had seen so much, in the world outside, didn't seem so big, or so intimidating. And, for the first time since she lost her father, she was excited for what came next. The old lady, presumably, stayed with the village. Seeing as her tower had killed one dragon, and injured the other, the dragon did not want anything to do with the women of that village. The dragon never came back. There were easier villages to eat. We don't know anything about what happened to the cane after she left with the king. That being said, she just took on three dragons, so she was fairly confident in her ability to take whatever life threw at her. One Story I was pretty critical of the cane, kind of chastising her for going along with the society's views on the inferiority of women, while directly contradicting those views by going on an epic dragon hunt alone. I disagree, and I framed it differently. I mean, yes, she was kind of trapped and went along with the system, but I like how she kind of played the system by its own rules, did better than any guy in the story, and came out on top, despite the bad situation and the village's opinion of her. Next week, we're starting with the Epic of Gilgamesh, the number one most requested story I get. It's beyond ancient, roughly 1,200 years older than the Trojan War, and we'll see that people then, like now, had fears about life and death, and what it all means. But there's also a pagan super cow, and large, hairy, naked strangers, so that will keep us from getting too deep and philosophical. I want to say thanks to Pretty Colorful, EJ Inc., Hunter B404, New Fan Nina, Third Year War, D Phillips44, Wolf Lover16, Tiff Liz Cork, The Bombsickle, Molo the Bibliophile, Death Star 398, Liana Bat, Kells K, S Black 89, and The Crab Apple for reviews on iTunes. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is the best place. And you can find the show there at iTunes.mythPodcast.com. Also, there's a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a flux capacitor car charger, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free shows that probably won't malfunction and send a teenager back to 1955 to have some troubling interactions with his parents. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more information on the membership. The creature this week is the leprechaun from Irish folklore. Okay, So we're nearly 80 episodes in, and this is the first really famous creature I've done. It's the type of creature you think of when you think of Creature of the Week. I hope this doesn't mean I've jumped the shark. Anyway, you probably know what a leprechaun is, or at least the broad strokes of his story. He's a little green guy with a pot of gold that may or may not be at the end of a rainbow. Except that, according to the Irish poet W.B. Yeats, one of my personal favorite poets, the leprechaun might actually wear a red coat because he's a solitary creature. The Trooping Fairies, as they're called, wear green. The Leprechaun is also stooped, wrinkled, and serious. That being said, he has the kavorka, or the lure of the animal, because female fairies are almost always trying to marry him. But the Leprechaun apparently can't be pinned down like that, he likes the bachelor life. In fact, that's one theory as to why he's forever alone, because he doesn't want to get married, and has to stay away from the ladies for their sake. Also, we've talked about the Clericon a long time ago, The leprechaun's drunk cousin who likes to take your dog on terrifying rides and judge your wine collection. And the clericon might just be the leprechaun in another form, because the leprechaun works hard, and it plays hard, cutting loose after a long day making shoes with some heavy drinking and dog rides. That's another thing about leprechauns, they make shoes. I found that their immense wealth is either from finding pots of gold buried around Ireland, or because they make a lot of high-quality shoes at competitive prices. People are always trying to get their gold, too. And if you capture it, you can force it to give up its treasure. Growing up, I vaguely remember making leprechaun traps in school, and I looked it up and it's apparently a thing. I don't remember the traps exactly, but the whole thing is that the leprechaun is quick and invisible, and if you caught it, you would get his gold. Spoiler alert, no one ever caught a leprechaun. What I think is funny is that we're really just teaching kids to shake down creatures who got their money from hours upon hours of hard work. Really, we were just trying to capture the creature to rob it but they wouldn't have come around the schools anyway, because leprechauns from folklore apparently hate schools and teachers, because teachers are educated and discourage belief in leprechauns. Unlike a very interesting horror movie series, the leprechauns will not hunt you down and murder you if you take their gold. They'll probably just get back to work putting their lives back together after you rob them of their savings. They aren't bad creatures. I mean, they aren't necessarily good, but they aren't like Warwick Davis's leprechaun from the leprechaun movies. I have to plead ignorance on pop culture leprechauns too. I've read that many modern depictions of leprechaun are little more than just a bunch of Irish stereotypes shoved into a little green suit. They are pranksters, but they seem to be the mostly non-murderous, non-child kidnapping type, which is always a breath of fresh air. I say mostly non-murderous because one of his supposed pranks is throwing babies on the floor, which, as a parent, is definitely not a prank. Do not do this. Other fun things he will do is make flames creep from your fire into the house and watch you get up in a panic to put them out or not catch on fire yourself. Which, slightly better than throwing infants on the ground, but still pretty terrifying. He'll also make pots boil over and put out the fire, and then you'll be unable to use that same pot to bring water to a boil. Which, is just super annoying. One writer of Irish folklore talks about the leprechaun being about three feet tall and riding a sheep. Aside from riding a sheep's side saddle through the countryside, he's pretty easy to spot because his fashion is hundreds of years out of date, with stockings, buckle breeches, a cocked hat, and an Elizabethan collar. Basically, if a three-foot-tall man shows up to your house dressed like he's going to the Renaissance Festival, do not let him hold your baby. If you want a leprechaun to not prank you by joking about burning down your house or throwing your baby on the ground, just carry an iron horseshoe. Not only might the iron repel them, like it would for many other creatures, but I found one source that said the leprechauns love horses to distraction. The books just say the iron horseshoe will spare you from his pranks, so either you will repel the leprechaun, or you'll be roped into a conversation, and be forced to listen politely, while the leprechaun goes on, and on, and on, about his favorite hobby. At the end of it, you'll probably just wish he had burned down your house instead. (laughs) That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Other music is by Pottington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. And there are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts.